Thank you for listening to this artist talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. In this live recording, John R. Walker discusses his work on display in the 2018 Adelaide Biennial of Australian Art, Divided Worlds. This exhibition is showing until the 3rd of June 2018. Of an auditory challenge in here because of the scale of the room. I'm going to hang around and I'm going to be over here. Can you just let us know if you're having trouble hearing? This weekend is so great, we don't want you to miss a thing. So we just have to make sure you can absolutely hear everything. John R. Walker, whose work is behind us, or behind me, is joined in conversation with curator Erica Green. Please join me in welcoming them. Uh, Thank you very much, Lisa, and welcome, everyone. And I think John's work does sort of feed from the Ken sisters. They are painting up in the APY lands, and the series of works behind us are called Oratunga and Barra Suite. And Oratunga is in the Flinders Ranges, which is just the south of um, APY lands in, in South Australia, which is a very good place, perhaps, to start. But I think maybe before we start talking about the work, we might find out a little bit about John R. Walker, and I'll ask him to perhaps tell us a little bit about himself and really how he came to to art and particularly to painting and painting landscape because John has always painted landscape. Well, that's not quite true, actually. But yeah, um, Thanks, John. I, 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 it, it is really, in a way, true, but um, I basically sort of knew I wanted to do this when I was about seven, so I, I can't, and I can't explain that, you know. Um, but when I first really started, like when I was an 18-year-old, 19-year-old, um, landscape painting was sort of like really uncool. And it did take me a while to accept that, like, for better or worse, my deepest uh, empathy is with being in the landscape. Um, so it took me a while, but once I started doing that, it just sort of fed on and on. But part of that came, I think, you've always had a close association with landscape. Oh, you did I, a lot of bushwalking. Yeah, yeah. And, I, I should and say, my, my dad was actually a slum kid, and when he went into the army, like a lot of slum kids, he discovered how the army might be shit and boring or dangerous, but going camping and going bush was wonderful. You know? So my fondest memories of childhood in the 60s, really, and, and so on, was actually going bush, because suburbia was really boring. But going down, even down to Guatemala or up to Lismore or whatever, and camping was like oh, wonderful, fun, and going bushwalking and so on was great. So like, I did that all the time, loved it. Uh, I gradually started to accept that that actually was probably what I had to paint. So by the time I was about 35, you know, that was what I was doing, which is also part of why. Eventually, we moved out of Sydney and moved into a place where I can walk out my door and it's about 500 metres out of the little town I'm in, and I'm in the landscape. Um, So there's almost no separation between my life and my work at all anymore. So place is clearly a very important thing yeah, in your yeah, practice. Yeah, and, and, and place is really... It's like, I mean, Simon Sharma... There's a book of his called Landscape, Place and Memory. And I should say Landscape, Place and Memory is a title which occurs in many places. But, you know, um, place is so much about time, memory and history as it is about, um, you know, 
coordinates on a map or whatever. So perhaps if we're talking about place, John, just looking at these works, where are we and what are we looking at? Okay, look, look the, the long and the short is that about two years ago, because I've never really been to South Australia, we um, decided to go and do a house swap with a friend who lives in Barra. And then we also got the use of the Oratunga homestead. And for those of you who don't know, Oratunga is right up the northern end of the Flinders. It's at the end of the Bitchman, and it's about 8 k's west of um, the little town of Blimmen, which is a, Blimmen is a pub, basically, yeah. And this homestead is in the middle of a particularly complex piece of geology and, and geography. I mean, the whole Flinders is amazingly complex, but the area is, is, is like being buried, it's been chewed up, it's been chopped, it's been rotated so that the, the creek flows which follow the faults in the rock and so on are like unbelievably maze-like. And the landscape is also dominated by the native black cypress, which is calatris. Um, the eucalypts are really just in the wetter, you know, gullies. Um, so it's a landscape for someone who lives in the granites of the East Coast, or it used to live in the sandstone country around Sydney. Um, it's a landscape which is quite eerie to me. Um, it has this amazing spiritual hum to it, this sense of deep time. A lot of the rocks are actually a thousand, a thousand million years old. Um, the younger ones are 600 million years old and have fossils remains which are basically the oldest uh, complex life forms known. Amongst them could well be the ancestor vertebrate of all of us. Yeah. So it, yeah. it's interesting actually, we touched on um, the, the ideas around deep time with Amos Gebhardt's work and also um, Hayden Fowler's work this morning mm. in, in, the, in the forum sessions. Yeah. And I know you've had a very uh, long interest in deep time and I, but I think the your interest in deep time actually comes more from an interest in the geology of the landscape. Is that well, it's right, or it's, is there other aspects of deep it's time? It's the interest in the landscape. I mean, the whole sense of deep time and is really a sense of landscape as a process. I mean, the, the discovery of geology back in the like, early 19th century was real, the realisation that what we see is the result of a process. And importantly, it's a process which is much the same now as it was a million years ago, so you can infer from one place to another what's happening. But it's a process. It's, it's measured in, in metres down a trench and also kilometres across country. It, it's, it's landscape not as something fixed, but something that's constantly changing. I mean, we, we, we are drifting north at about, I think it's about five centimetres a year from memory. But, you know, so like Australia 20 million years ago, we would have been, uh, Adelaide would have been a lot colder. It would have, yeah. it would have been a lot colder. Mm. And I suppose that idea of sort of the, the shifts in time and, and movement, I mean, is that, that akin to somehow your practice and the way you approach painting? And how, how did yes. you actually approach, yeah. you know, looking uh, look, at this uh, landscape? Uh, it's not from a fixed point of view? No, because looking is not fixed. Yeah. Um, I think by now my subject matter as much as anything is actually about looking at self. It's about the process of how things come into being in mind. Um, it's about, like, there aren't really objects at all. Um, and there really is only change. 
You know, I mean, it's a, it's a wonderful thing if you ever really get to see a few Cezannes, I mean, actual Cezannes, not reproductions, because they lose it, but that sense that everything is just places and points of change. That, you know, the solid is actually, like Shakespeare, Prospero says, melts, all melts into thin air. All those Binzi towers, you know. I, I suppose that's another element in your work, and I, in the essay uh, that Deborah Hart wrote, she talks about your interest in, in Sidney Nolan, and it was the spirituality in, in yeah, Sidney Nolan's yeah. work. Perhaps you could talk about that in terms of your practice. Look, poetry... Um, it's, Nolan, by the way, is famous for the fact that he used to go to the library, because he was poor, but he'd go to the Victorian library every Saturday, Sunday. And there are books and books in the library that have got Nolan's annotations, you know, like all over the place. Like, I don't know how he didn't get caught, but, you know... And, and people like Rambo and so on were terribly important. Um, for me, uh, the poets that probably I go to more often than anyone would be the Japanese poet Basho, about 17th century, um, Mar um, Marvell. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm having a seniors moment. Um, um, and no, no, no. But John Donne. Sorry, I'm, I'm, um, Les Murray. But but and also music. I, I particularly love Armenian sacred music. Um, and the, I should say the, the Northern Flinders has this amazing resonance with. Um, Armenian sacred music. The, the place has a feel very similar to, say, the Holy Land, actually. Um, and Barra also has its own resonance. I mean, like, if Flinders is basically really deep time, which is measured in tens or even thousands of millions of years, Barra is sort of historical time, like, you know, 50 to 100 years sort of stuff. But then outside Barra, there's this amazing washaway called Red Banks, and about a third of the way down the, the, the cut, and it can be 10 metres or more deep, but about a third of the way down, there's a layer that has a lot of megafauna fossil. So there's the dipyprodont bones, there's all sorts of megafauna stuff there. Now, we're talking about probably 100,000 years or so for that area, which is sort of archaeological time. You know, it's a time that includes us to some degree, you know. Um, and actually that brings me to another thing when we were in Oratonga behind you that, that we were walking we walked from the homestead down to a place called Glass Gorge which is only it's about 6k's off track it's pretty easy country to walk in and we stopped about halfway and I boiled the billy and like I've got a little gas stove that we use and um, I was doing some drawing and just looking most of my research, I hate that word, but is simply to be in a place and walk around and, and look. Because it's all about, it's like Berger said really beautifully, a, a drawing of a tree shows not a tree. It shows a tree being looked at, which is an important difference. But anyway, I was looking and I suddenly saw this sort of shadow about probably 800 metres away on the other side of this fairly narrow canyon. And it just sort of, I drew it, and it, I realised afterwards it sort of like had hooked in me, you know, like sort of was there. I didn't know, quite know what to make of it really, but I didn't bother. And that, it's drawn in that book there. These are Chinese folding books, and they, they have this wonderful quality. They're very tough. 
They can fold out to even six metres long, depending on the type, but they fold up neatly into a backpack, and you can just sort of do a bit, a bit, do a bit, and then when I take them home to the studio, you can also rearrange them and see what that looks like, what this looks like, almost like a sort of set of storyboards for plotting a movie. So you can, oh, actually, I'll move the death scene from there to here, sort of thing, you know. Um, anyway, so that's sort of where that bit came, and that was the core of this part of the, the suite. I, I view this as a sort of meta-triptych. It's, it's three pieces, but two of the pieces are made of three pieces. Um, and then this one over here, the burrow one, um, the end panel, that falling branch, I was up in a particularly ruined part of Burrow. It's been completely abandoned. And I was hiding from the wind in the lee of this fairly wrecked wall. And I was watching and drawing. I suddenly realized that this branch of an old fruit tree, it was bare, it was late, late winter, early spring, was just gently sweeping this pile of old stones and bits of broken glass and, you know, bits of metal. And I got that down, and I, I think it was actually a few days later, but suddenly I remembered this particular haiku by Basho that goes, um, I'm awestruck to hear a cricket singing underneath the dark cavity of an old helmet. So they sort of created, and I should say with this one, the, the sort of rock shelter, um, the, there's a particular bit of John, of sort of, yeah, John Donne's last poem, which is a hymn to my God in my sickness, that goes, as east and west in all flat maps, and I am one, are one, so death doth touch the sleeve of the resurrection. And like, as people who know me, I, I have a bit of an obsession with Piero della Francesca's resurrection, which is, I, I always thought it was the best painting of its size in the whole world. It's quite something, but it is an incredible evocation of something that is sort of logically impossible, which is different to saying something is true or false. Impossible is sort of like, I mean, it's related to things like the Cretan who tells you all Cretans are liars. It's something that is true, not true, and therefore it's neither. Right, yeah. And again, with this middle piece, Part of the story about this whole picture is we came back from the South Australia and like Erica had said to me, I have this wall. And I do like big, right, um, small, you know, but I had this idea of doing three trip dishes, right. So anyway, I stretched up the canvases for basically these three and got the first panel basically down in about two days, and it was right, and then the next bit. Then we went off to do a meditation retreat and came back. Actually, there was a marvelous thing that night, one of the nights of the retreat, we'd come back from like about an hour of silence around dusk, walking back to our little room, you know, came around this corner, and on the railing in the dark, looking at us was an owl about, you know, and she just sort of sat there and looked at us, and we just stood there and looked at her for about, I don't know, it felt like about two or three minutes before she took off. It was quite magical, but, sorry. Um, anyway, we got back, and I got that one, sorry, the last panel, the, 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 the mesh, 
Uh, and the mesh has a long story, but I, a few years ago, did a drawing book of um, a really ratty hexagon mesh fence uh, up on a mountain near my home. And I took it to Sydney, and Chris, my agent, Chris Hodges, showed it to a neurobiologist, um, who's a friend and client, you know, who said, I haven't drawn that many carbon chain molecules since I was at uni. <laughs> And, I mean, that mesh thing, I, I mean, I'm sparing with it, but I love the way that it actually is a carbon chain molecule drawn. It's also a sign of human ingenuity, you know, this woven mesh of stuff. It's also a sign of constraint, and it can also be a sign of, you know, not really nice things, you know, in a way. I mean, if you're used to bushwalking, you suddenly come to a country like where I live, where you, there's a fence, you know? And I've learnt I can get permission, but, like, it's quite different to where you can just wander, you know. Um, and what was I saying about... I'm, I'm sorry. Anyway, I, I, the next triptych actually was going to be Red Banks, the big wash away. And it sort of started okay, but then it went into this sort of hole. And it went into a hole. And after a few weeks, I just went, uh, you know and rolled it up and stuck in the corner, and I realised I could see the burrow one. And that came fairly quickly, you know, about three or four weeks. And then I realised that the wall wasn't quite big enough for three five-and-a-half-metre pictures anyway. And I suddenly realised that there was sort of a thing in between. And I can't quite tell you what that is, but it's a sort of skin, a, a hum. Like places for me, um, I, I, I taste colour, and that things have a hum, a, a sort of colour flavour. Like I've have a few musician friends who who understand what I'm talking about. Um, in fact, I remember a few years ago talking with um, uh, Martin Armitage about the fact that both of us hadn't realised until quite late in life that other people don't sort of when they see things, taste something, or in his case, when he hears notes, he sees colour. You know, you just think it's normal. Yeah. Sorry, you were, what were you... No, no I wasn't yeah. going to... I didn't want to um, stop your Sorry. flow. Um, so that's sort of how it all went, you know. Um, I... Somebody apparently the other night at a dinner here asked, um, what does it mean? And... You mean the central panel of no, the, the whole, whole thing? The whole painting, the I guess. But, but, and I can I say, like, it, <clears throat> it means what it means. I mean, like, what does a bark fugue mean, you know? Um, yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's a good place to um, just pause for a moment and see if there's any questions you'd like to ask John. Yeah. Do you want to... Hi, John. I love these paintings because I've been to Orotonga with a group of artists and I just I yep. can feel the landscape in them and mm. the colours. Yep. So I'm intrigued to ask you what are the tastes of these colours? You know, the best I could say is if you Google or YouTube, uh, there's an Armenian hymn called Bats, B-A-T-S, Between, there's a sort of acid green, yellow green up here, 
we will be experiencing a big day out in Burrow. The bus leaves here, very special members price. The bus leaves here from the art gallery. We arrive in Burrow and we will be treated to the following things, not necessarily in the order that I'm about to say them in because I can't quite recall. <laughs> Lunch at La Pecoronera, the black sheep, which is uh, one of the startling features of Burrow. John's a good gourmet too. Yeah. <laughs> a talk by John R. Walker in the Borough Regional Gallery. And we've been developing this program with our friends from Borough, and I know a few of them are here. Uh, and a fabulous performance. And there will be some of John's work on view as well. And a fabulous performance by Zephyr Quartet. And Zephyr have actually responded to the Adelaide Biennial in their production of a, a beautiful new score, which is very exciting. And I believe you get a glass of bubbly before you jump on the bus to head back home. <laughs> the big day out in Borough, that it will be. Actually, and if you haven't been to Borough, it is quite a remarkable place. You know, I mean, it, it's, you come in over these rolling hills. It, it, was, it was a set for Breaking Morant, actually. So it's, it, and it's quite, it does feel a bit like South African, you know, belt. Yep. It's not desert, but it's pretty desolate, you know. And then there's this enormous hole in the ground. At 1.8 850, there were something like 5,000 men and boys working in the mine. And then there would have been God knows how many people, you know, selling booze and whatever. So it was a huge industrial complex at that time in Australian terms. And within 20 years, it was all gone. But the, they just left everything behind. And it's a really interesting little town. I mean, it's far from extinct as a town. But uh, look, look, I presume we're running a bit late on time. I think we're right on time now. I'd just really like to say thank you to Erica and to Lisa and to Nick and to the whole gallery crew. Um, having a chance to actually have a, a wall this big. Um, like Erica asked me about this two years ago, who was exactly, yeah. And I just went, wow, yes, yeah. I, I, um, I really grew up, I mean, I've gone a long way from being anything vaguely European, I think, these days, but. I grew up with things like Delacroix, you know, and the Rafa Medusa, and, you know, as Delacroix said, if you can't draw a man in the time it takes him to fall from the fourth floor of a building, you can't do the machines, you know. I, scale is wonderful to actually have this much wall space and to be trusted to make a complete idiot of myself. <laughs> um, oh, thanks, Charlotte. Well, we, 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 we,